We are meeting with Jesus this summer because of what happens when a person meets with him. That's what we're working on together. And today we're going to see one meeting where a man is completely changed by the encounter. And from that meeting, we're going to learn some things about Jesus so that we ourselves have the right expectation about how he will change us. And so as a church, we see how we should be representing Jesus to others. The scene we'll observe involves a man who is isolated and suffering, completely chaotic inside. Do you know what that's like? Jesus comes and brings perfect peace to this man. He delivers him completely. Before meeting Jesus, he is hopelessly tormented. After meeting Jesus, he is completely renewed and restored. This exchange between the two of them will give us the opportunity to observe three elements of Jesus' identity. We'll see Jesus' focus, his power, and his priorities. And this is what we're going to learn this morning. We're going to start with Jesus' focus, and we'll see that Jesus focuses on all who suffer, to go to them with his help. Then we'll see that Jesus' power is greater than everything. And I mean it, everything. Even the spiritual forces of chaos that ruin human life And then finally, we'll see that Jesus prioritizes people over things. No matter what it costs, he wills to save and deliver every person. The story will change us if we'll let it by helping us see how Jesus means to change us and how we are meant to represent him to others. The story is told in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of Mark. If you have a Bible and you want to follow along, I'm going to give you a moment to find your way to Mark chapter 5. That story recounts a scene which occurs immediately after Jesus' boat makes landfall right on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Here's how the story opens. Mark 5 verse 1. They came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. This is a city which is one of the Decapolis. It's 10 Gentile settlements that came into being after the exile. It's populated by people who were outsiders to the Jews. Okay, this is them to us for Jesus and his disciples. And when he had stepped out of the boat, immediately a man out of the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. Jesus and his disciples step onto the shore and a man with an unclean evil spirit who lived in a graveyard comes to meet him. This is a Gentile man with an evil spirit who lives among tombs. Unclean, unclean, unclean. The setting of this story is the wrong place with the wrong kind of person. Now, listen carefully to what this man's life looks like. This is verse 3. He lived among the tombs and no one could restrain him anymore, even with a chain. For he had often been restrained with shackles and chains, but the chains he wretched apart and the shackles he broke in pieces and no one had the strength to subdue him. Here is a man whose life is in absolute and total 
chaos. Inside for him, it is turmoil all the time. The people in his village had only one way to try to deal with him, which was to isolate him and put him where dead people belonged and chain him up, but not even the chains could restrain him because the power of that force inside of him which made life so miserable was so strong that nothing could restrain him. He would break out and here he is coming to Jesus. He was isolated and all alone until Jesus came to him. Now think for a moment of how hard life can be. This man's life is very hard. Now, Jesus arrives on the shore and is greeted by him, listen carefully now, not by accident. It was not a mistake that Jesus ended up there of all the places that he could have landed when he decided to come to shore with his boat. And listen again, it's not a mistake that you're here this morning, any of you, either for what Jesus means to do for you or through you for someone else. Listen carefully to this detail. And this helps us understand why Jesus landed where he did. Listen, this is verse five. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always howling and bruising himself with stones. Have you ever been in a place in life where the only thing that you can do is cry? Where the only thing that's happening inside of you is just groaning this man all night amongst the tombs and on the mountainside by the water howls. Now this story was told immediately following Jesus' journey on a boat on that water the night before with his disciples. Do some of you know what happened out on the water the night before? There was a great storm that came up on the sea. And the disciples were absolutely terrified. Do you know this story? But Jesus is asleep in the boat because he's not terrified at all because Jesus isn't afraid because Jesus has power. The disciples wake him up and they, they say to him, we're perishing, don't you care? And then he stands and with one word, he quiets the storm. It's a great story. I can't tell by your responses that you think this is a great story, but inside you're thinking, I love that story. Jesus says one word and it's completely calm at night out on the water adjacent to this village where this man is in the tombs. I have a friend who visited Israel and took a trip on a boat in this same place and he was out there at nighttime. And when it was quiet and still, he could hear the sounds of the shepherds on the other side of the sea caring for their animals. He could hear the sounds of the sheep and the animals crying out. He asked the tour guide about it. And the tour guide said very simply, sound travels really far across the water, especially at night, especially when it's still. A person who is listening for it can hear what's happening on the other side of the sea. Jesus was listening the night before. And after he calmed the storm on the sea, he heard that there was a man on the other shore who had a storm inside of his heart, and he was listening. Every time that man cried, every groan of his reached 
Jesus' ear and went right into Jesus' heart. Please listen to me now. Jesus is listening now. And this is the first thing that this story teaches us about who Jesus is. It's about Jesus' focus. Jesus focuses on all who suffer so that he can go toward them with his help. How are you personally suffering right now? Please direct your attention toward yourself for a moment. There's no stability in your life. Everything is changing and you have no idea what to hold on to. The loneliness that you feel on the path which you have to walk on, it just makes you groan and you are dying inside. The person that you love is hard to love and so are you and it's only fights nowadays and you don't know how to make it. Or the person that you love and get along with is suffering from an illness that is causing them slowly but steadily to drift away from you and you have to look at a future without them. Your child's mental health is fragile, so your mental health is fragile. Everything is so out of control that harming yourself, it's the only thing that gives you a sense of control. Hear this word from the scriptures. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and binds up the contrite in spirit. That's Psalm 34, 18. The Lord hears those who cry out to him and cry out in truth. That's Psalm 149, I think. You can check it out later. (laughs) (laughs) The promise is true, and we see it here in the story, that Jesus is the one who chooses to focus his attention on every cry. That's who he is. At night, when the storm is raging in here, Jesus hears every bit of it, and he is coming to you through that storm so that he can calm that chaos in you with a word, just like he did in the sea and exactly how he will for this man. We'll see that in a moment. Before we look at that man, again, go inwardly for a bit here. And if you have to groan, in this silence, groan inwardly. And then trust this promise. Jesus is coming toward you in the graveyard where you suffer by yourself. Let him into that place of anguish. Picture him coming to you. He loves you. He is kind. He is here to help you. Jesus' focus is directed toward all who suffer, including you. Maybe for you, it's not so easy to think of yourself because there's a person in your life who's really suffering and all you can think about is that person. Okay, that's good. Let's think about them for a minute. We want to be a church that is shaped by Jesus and that means we want our focus as a church to follow the focus of our Lord Jesus. Think about that person for a moment who's suffering. Ask God now, and this is not a rhetorical question, request. I mean it. Ask God to show you how to go toward the people in your life who are suffering alone. Ask him in prayer. You might naturally want to keep your distance. I'm sure the disciples did not want to go to that graveyard. But if Jesus goes, then we should go. Ask him, how can the light which you've put in my heart by faith, the presence of the Holy Spirit? How can it shine in the dark places that you want me to go to? Youth leaders in this church, 
shine by providing a listening ear for a young person where they can talk about the things that are too hard for them. Tell your own story if it helps. Folks who work with children in our church, teach them about the love of Jesus faithfully. Anyone in here who's friends with another person, push beyond the small talk with that friend who's always avoiding the things that need to be talked about, push beneath it and make room for sharing about what's really going on. Be a friend who goes there. Community group leaders, when someone hints at their challenges, keep them a bit bit later and, and let them talk and then organize with others to help them together. Support group facilitators in this church. Embody Jesus' presence with your ears. Jesus focuses his attention on all who suffer. We who follow him must do the same for one another if we're going to be his followers. That's first. Now the story goes on and it develops. And I'll tell you what, and someone might be thinking this already, if we go there, then we're going to face challenges that are too much for us. Does that occur to anybody? Yeah, when you start really being there to help people, pretty soon you're overwhelmed, right? It gets way too much for you. And I'm going to tell you what, it will be too much for you. It will never be too much for Jesus because Jesus' power is greater than everything. That's the second thing that we see in this story, okay? And here's where it gets pretty hairy, okay? (laughs) Uh, In verse 6, let's look at the exchange between Jesus and this man. When he saw Jesus from a distance, he ran and bowed down before him and he shouted at the top of his voice, what have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Here's an explanation for why he said this, verse eight, for he had said to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. Then Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion. For we are many. Now that statement right there is an ominous statement to hear from a stranger who rushes up to you. Legion is the largest battalion of Roman soldiers that was quantified. 5,600 warriors equipped for battle and ready to kill and destroy. This man is possessed by a legion of demons and that's why he suffers so badly and that's why he's such a fright to all of his peers. People raised in the West at this time in history like us have a hard time believing in demons. Maybe not all of us, but many of us will. And a lot of your peers will think this is where Christianity uh, goes from fact into make-believe. But if, if the outlook of the New Testament is to guide our worldview and we come and ask the question, why is the world so messed up? The answer it gives is absolutely unequivocal. It's because of the presence of malevolent spiritual forces. That's why the world is as troubled as it is. And, and when someone who is disinclined to believe in spiritual beings looks honestly at the world as it is, At the end of a a long conversation, you might find that they're more open to the reality of evil than they might otherwise make it seem. Disembodied, but completely real, forces are at work exerting influence in the hearts and minds of people all around us and ourselves, and that's a part of why the world is as it is. This worldview is captured concisely by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians 6. I want you to see these words. 
Verse 12 says, Our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This man in the graveyard, his struggle comes from spiritual and entirely real forces that are at work in him. And the reason, according to Paul, that his life is like a battle and our lives feel like a battle is because the world is engaged in a spiritual war. And though we've been conditioned to doubt anything that can't be verified empirically according to a very strict set of evidence uh, that will scientists will say, here's what's real, anyone who looks at the world with open eyes will have to admit spiritual evil is real. In 1994, I worked at an inner city school in Philadelphia. At the start of that year, if you asked me, do you believe in demons, I would have said in a polite way, no, I do not. But my experiences changed that outlook. I was an assistant to Amos Walwenda. He was an incredible teacher and a delightful disciple who came from Kenya to teach in Philadelphia. One of his students was a young woman whose defiance was mind-boggling. She was disruptive, self-destructive, uh, angry at a level that I had never seen before. One afternoon during recess, she was raging against the other students. I got involved. Some of the other teachers came over, and it only ratcheted up from there. It got worse. It was scary for every person, including me. Amos turned to me and said calmly, she has a demon. Now, his assessment surprised me, but more surprising was how calmly he offered it. He was not afraid in the least. He took her by the hand, and we walked back to the classroom with one other teacher, and left the rest of the kids outside. He put a hand on her shoulder and then another hand gently on her head. And then he calmly and sweetly prayed for her. He asked God to take away the power of darkness. He asked Jesus to restore peace in her heart and to let her know deep down how loved she was by him. And then the raging just stopped. She sat still. No more anger on her face. She was gentle and quiet again. Malevolent spiritual beings are real. They have agency. They affect people. Young and old. But their power is relative. And so we do not need to be afraid Amen. at all. They are completely resistible because Jesus' power is completely superior. Amen. I want to take my time here because I want you to take this to heart. That subject is scary. It's one of the reasons we don't want to talk about it. But it doesn't need to be scary at all because Jesus, you remember his focus? He focuses on all who suffer to go toward them and his power, his power is greater than everything. And, and I hope you saw this in this scene. The man with 5,600 demons does not run up to Jesus with a threat. He bows down on his knees because every power of evil knows that when it's in the presence of Jesus, it is in the presence of a completely superior power. And so it's afraid. So we don't have to be. Watch, this is so cool. 
Watch what uh, the man then uh, and, and the legion of demons say to Jesus in verse 10. He begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. They're begging Jesus. 5,600 against one, and they're begging him. And they don't want to go out of the country. They have some more work to do apparently in this area. <laughs> but, but here they are reduced to, to begging. And here, let me ask you again to think of yourself or the people that are around you. You might think, I've never considered it before. Is there some kind of spiritual element in the suffering that I face or that this beloved person that I care about so much faces? I think the answer is likely to be yes, there is. But here, please take this away from the story. The one who is focused on that sufferer has more power than whatever spiritual agency is at work and he is always ready to be called in to help. He wants to and he will, like he does here. Jesus' power is greater than everything that causes human misery. The outcome in this story demonstrates a third element in Jesus' identity that we need to see and it is Jesus' priorities. His focus is on those who suffer. His power is greater than everything. His priority, listen, I'll tell you right now, his priority is people over things. And that means no matter what it costs, he he will work his power to bring wholeness. Uh, Look at verse 11. Now, there on the hillside, a great herd of swine was feeding. And the unclean spirits begged him, send us into the swine. Let us enter them. Okay, now you have unclean spirits asking to enter unclean animals. Makes sense. But listen now, if these demons go into those pigs, there will be massive economic consequences. Watch, this is verse 13. So he gave them permission and the unclean spirits came out and entered the swine and the herd, numbering about 2,000, rushed down the steep bank into the sea and were drowned in the sea. Now, 2,000 pigs is an absolutely enormous herd, especially for this region, worth an astronomical amount of money. This loss will have significant impact on the economy of the entire region, which means saving this man was really expensive. And the locals noticed. Okay, watch this, verse 14. The swine herds ran off and told it in the city and in the country. Then people came to see what it was that had happened. They came to see Jesus and saw the demoniac sitting there clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had had the legion. Can you imagine seeing that if you were one of the people who put him there in chains and knew what it was like to have him howling all the while in your neighborhood, to see him clothed and in his right mind sitting at Jesus' feet? Look at their reaction, and they were afraid. Why do you think they were so scared? The answer comes in what's next, verse 16. Those who had seen what had happened to the demoniac and to the swine reported it. Then they began to beg Jesus to leave their neighborhood. They saw two things. They saw what happened to the man who was restored and they, ha- they saw what happened to the swine who were destroyed and in their economy... The swine were worth more than the man. And so they wanted Jesus to get away from them. He was bad for business. 
And in any economy that measures things as more important than people, it would make sense not to want Jesus around because apparently Jesus cares so much even about one individual who's been pushed to the margins and set aside and chained up and forgotten in a place where the dead are supposed to be. Apparently Jesus cares so much about this one man that he will rescue him no matter what it costs. And this fact of Jesus' identity, this third element It should be, first of all, a comfort to every individual in here, and second of all, a massive challenge to us as a church. If you ever wonder, what am I worth? Well, to God, you are worth everything, a lot more than a herd of swine. The Bible tells us that Jesus gave himself for us to purchase us, and and Christians believe that Jesus was the embodiment of God himself, the incarnation, that doctrine of the incarnation says in Christ, God was with us, and in Christ, God gave his whole self to deliver and rescue us. That's how much you are worth to him. Jesus prioritizes you just that much exactly as you are. In your isolation and in your chaos inside and in your misery in that graveyard, that's how much you matter to him. The challenge to us as a church is that our economics should follow Jesus. And this means, and I'll be super practical here, it means if we're following Jesus as a group, that our priorities should be shaped like his so that our spending, the money that we have, should be governed by the the priority of bringing spiritual transformation just like we see here. And I'll be very practical here. We should use the money that you and that I and that we all together share in this mission like Jesus does here when we invest in this building, which right now we're doing a lot of work on upstairs in the auditorium and in the children's ministry area, we should make it useful for delivering people spiritually, first of all. That should help us judge whether, whether we've used our money well. All of the resources that we put into children's ministry, we should put it in there so that children can meet with Jesus and be changed spiritually. No one's too young for that. We should invest in the ministries in our church which bring justice and deliverance to people so that we can help disciples grow spiritually. We should share our resources. We should expand our pastoral staff. We should increase our mission, all of it, so that spiritual transformation comes. And when we ask, is it worth it? If it results in the spiritual transformation of one person, the answer is yes. Expenses should be measured according to Jesus' priority and value. People over things. The spiritual well-being and deliverance of others should come before anything else in our church. Will you agree? Amen. Now the story, which shows us Jesus' focus and Jesus' power and Jesus' priorities, it ends with one more little tidbit that is, it's like a reward at the end of the story. It's nice. It shows us what we should expect if we're open and we receive Jesus' power and deliverance, and then we choose to focus like he does, what it shows us is that investing in people, even one person, really pays off. Because the one here who has been changed becomes an agent of change for others. And that's what Jesus wants. Uh, This is verse 18. As he was getting into the boat... The man who had been possessed by demons begged him that he might be with him. Okay, he wants to go along with Jesus and the disciples now. Watch how Jesus responds, verse 19. But Jesus refused and said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and what mercy he has shown you. 
And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis how much Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed. That word there, proclaim, in the gospel, that's a very heavy word. It's the work of someone who is an evangelist, who goes out and declares the good news of Jesus' focus on sufferers and power over everything and prioritizing people over anything else. This is the first evangelist in the gospel of Mark. An outsider who's unclean, a Gentile amongst Gentiles. In the Gospel of Mark, Jesus' first superstar evangelist is this guy who is changed and then pressed out into the world to be an agent of God's ongoing change. And this also should shape our expectations. If we invest in in ministries that deliver others, we should expect God to use those who are delivered to be his agents of deliverance everywhere around them. Here's what it means for you. If you know even a smidgen of the deliverance of the Lord, do some of you? Yes. Then like Jesus guided this man, you're responsible for going to your friends and telling them about all that the Lord has done for you. If that seems intimidating and hard to do, well, get over it and do it anyway. I mean it. If, 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 if you have been delivered from anxiety by Jesus and the subject goes to anxiety with your friend, say, I don't know how you'll think about this, but I just feel like I should tell you, I had a season of terrible anxiety and believe it or not, it was Jesus who delivered me. I prayed to him and I got involved in this church where I met him and it helped me. I, I'll pray for you for the same thing. You can do that. Uh, if, a, if a friend's got a child who's in disarray, say, I will pray for you. I've had trouble with my kids. There's folks in this church that I go to, they've prayed for me and my children. They're still a bit of a mess, but it's getting a little better. <laughs> I'm just being realistic here, right? Uh, Or if you've discovered purpose because Jesus has invited you or you've been used by him to help others or whatever he's done for you, your calling, if you have met with the Lord Jesus, is to tell others about it. And I know a lot of you do that. I know it. But here, we should be a church that does that more and more. Can we agree to that also? I've asked a lot of you this morning. We're still friends? All right. Let's do this now. Let's finish by reaching out to the Lord in prayer and asking him uh, to help us grow as his followers. Let's do that. Lord, we are so grateful for the witness of Scripture, for the word of God, which shows us the truth about who you are and who we are. We thank you that in this story in Mark, we see that you choose to direct your attention to all who suffer. We thank you for what that means to us in the places where we carry chaos alone in our own little graveyards. We thank you also for how it directs our attention toward those around us who need your presence. We thank you that your power is greater than every force which frustrates human flourishing. God, may we receive that power and then reflect it out in the world in simple ways like my friend Amos did in Philadelphia and in the ways that All of us are invited to be your agents of light in the darkness. And then, God, I ask very simply that we as a church and as individuals would prioritize the things you prioritize, the spiritual well-being of one over whatever it costs. Shape us into people whose deliverance is something that we can talk about with the friends around us so that you use us to bring others close to you. And we ask for this in Jesus' name and all God's people said together, Amen. Amen.